I want to start by talking about this website. There's a website that's online. There's plenty of websites online, but there's, there's a website online called deathclock.com. Anybody ever heard of it? Deathclock.com. Okay, a couple of you. And, and if you have, you're smiling, all right? So basically what this is, this is a website, and so you go to it, you click on it, and it will tell you, if you put in the right information, the, the, the date of your death, all right? If you've ever thought about that. How many of you have ever thought about, you know, would you, if you could know the day that you're going to die, how many of you would want to know that? Let me just see your hands. Okay, very few of you. You're like, no, don't tell me. Denial, denial, denial. But I was curious, so I thought, you know what? Let me just see what happens. And so I put in my height, 6'2". I put in my weight, 185. I'm just kidding. But I put in my weight, uh, 2, 2, 222, and uh, my age and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you clicked, you clicked, you know, this, this button, and it tells you the, the, the date. And so you might want to write this down. It's going to be a special day, Saturday, December 7, 2058. Put that on your calendar. It's going to be a special day for me. All right? So, so I, you know, I thought about that, and I, I thought, that's, that's 80, 86 years old. That's pretty good. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't make it that far. That's a pretty good life. And then I thought, you know, I can't change my height. I could change my weight. And so what if I just, like, knocked off 10 pounds? What would, what would that do? I thought, so let me, let me reboot it, put all my information back in, 212. Clicked on it, 12 more years. 12 more years for 10 pounds. It's like... See you guys, I'm out of here. It's going to start running. I don't know, but it, just one of those crazy things. So, so in this today, here's what I want you to know, that Jesus knows that his time is coming near. His death clock is sure. He doesn't need a website for that. He doesn't need to plug in all this, this information. It has been prophesied about. He knows that it is, it is, he's, he's moments away. And he's, he's been with his people. He's, 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 he's communicated the pressure of what's going on. And I'm, I'm even told as, as we talk about prisoners who go to death row, I watch all these different shows, documentaries, but there's these prisoners who end up on death row and, and they're very hardened about the fact that, that one day they're going to die until their sentencing day. And when their sentencing day comes up, then all of a sudden there's a flood of reality. The agony sets in. As they grow closer and closer to this, the, the pressure begins to mount. And Jesus is just gathered with his followers in an upper room. He shared a special meal with them. We talked about that last week. And he's given them some final instructions, some final teaching. And even right before that, he, he began to share with us some key things. And I think even key things for them, but also for us today. He said this in John 16, He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He wants us to have peace. He wants peace for us. And not like peace, the absence of war, but peace. Peace between one another. Peace in the midst of all that goes on in our world. He says this, in this world you will have trouble. You should probably write the word, underline the word will there. You will have trouble. And then he says this, and underline this, but take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Notice he doesn't say there's a chance that you're going to have trouble. It's not like predicting the, the, the rain. It's there's an 80% chance of trouble. He says, no, 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 listen, you're going to have trouble. Trouble is coming. Trouble is on the way. Either you're in a storm, coming out of a storm, headed for a storm. That's the reality of who we are. That's what Jesus promises us. But he promises us something else. He says this, but take heart. Don't quit. Don't give up. I've overcome the world. I win. I defeat the grave and I defeat sin. And so you can trust me. I'm worthy of your trust. Sometimes life is very hard, but God promises to help us if we will follow and trust him and obey his will. No matter how hard life gets. No matter how bad you feel, no matter how bad we've messed up, no matter whose fault it is, no matter what, what, what it is that you're facing, God promises to help us if we will lock in and seek Him and trust Him. 
Today, there's not a lot funny. Probably no illustrations, no jokes, nothing that's going to stick out. You know, and that's not typical of, of our time or my time with you. It's just a strong depiction of what's going on in these difficult moments that Jesus is encountering in the garden. Jesus just finished this Passover meal, the Last Supper with his, his disciples. They just finished singing a song together, and then they leave the upper room, and they head out to the city near, across this valley up on a small mountain to an olive grove area known as There we go. Gethsemane means olive press. That's what the word means, which, which is probably an orchard grove of trees and a press that they extract the oil from the olives in. Metaphorically, Jesus will be pressed. He will feel extreme pressure. The garden was in the Kidron Valley just outside the eastern wall of Jerusalem. It's important to capture the heart of this passage in the Passion Week, and we've been looking at it in our 2020 time. Thank you so much for all the encouragement, the emails, and the, and the, and the tweets, and, 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 the, and, the, and the text messages about what 2020 has meant for you throughout this series. It's been amazing. The, the story of the Garden of Gethsemane is found in these passages, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. It's where we've been. It's late at night. It's dark literally, and it's dark metaphorically for Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark 26. We're going to look at Mark's account. We're going to look at a few other accounts along the way, but for the most part, we'll camp out in, in Matthew 26. If you've got your Bibles, smart apps, smart, smart apps, that sounds funny, smart phones, whoa, uh, careful, what do you say? Uh, it's going to be also on the screen and in your outline as well. Move, let's move forward. Anyway, Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to the disciples, here's what he said, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And then he says this, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He's been telling them this. He's talked about it. He's talked about it in so many different ways. Hey, this temple's going to be torn down. He's talked about, he's just been very clear here it is, I'm going to be crucified. It's Thursday, a lot's about to happen in the, in the hours to come. Jesus has already told them, but he wants to make sure that these guys know, hey, listen, it's coming. Everything that, that the prophecies talked about, all the Old Testament, all these things are now in a collision course of reality. Prophecy will be fulfilled. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in this palace of the high priest known as Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and have him killed. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. You see, they had already tried multiple times to try to destroy Jesus, kill Jesus. They tried to stone Jesus. They tried to do all types of things. And so now there's a master plan. They have an idea. They know what they're going to do. They're going to try to grab him, arrest him secretly and assassinate him, exterminate him, move him off the planet, move his influence away from Rome, away from, away from Judaism, because they did not see Jesus as the Messiah. Their plan was to secretly kill Jesus. They didn't want to ensue a riot. And what's interesting is that they won't get that opportunity. God's plans of redemptions won't go unnoticed, regardless of the intentions. Everyone will know that Jesus is on a cross. If you got your outlines, the first blank in our notes today is that Jesus experiences agonizing pain. He experiences agonizing pain. And as we look through the scriptures, most of the time when we see Jesus, we see him with compassion and, and comfort going out of his way to make sure that, that people who are hurting, people who have, have disabilities, people who have things going on in their life, people that are sick, that he's always going toward them to heal them. But, but it's not the case in this moment. 
He's typically strong and powerful and merciful and loving. But in this moment, it's different. And don't forget that Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't work a desk job in a cubicle somewhere. He, he worked with his hands. He worked hard. He was strong. My dad, for the majority of his life, was a carpenter. He worked with wood. He made cabinets. He made all kinds of things in, inside buildings and, and for, for corporations and different things like that. And my dad, I just would watch him, his, his body. I remember when I was around 12 years old, my dad cut the tip off of his middle finger with a bandsaw. And, and over, over the course of decades after decades, my dad has dealt with back pain and nerve damage and knee pain and elbow pain and shoulder pain. He just retired last year and, and he had his first sh- sh- uh, surgery on, his, on his, right, his right shoulder. He needs to have it on his his left shoulder. It's tough work. It's tough work carrying wood and swinging a hammer and cutting wood. I'm certain that Jesus was strong. And I'm certain that he had his fair share of, of cuts and bruises and pulled muscles and, 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 and writhing pain and rough hands and splintered hands and close calls. It's here in this moment that we're getting ready to walk into that we see the humanity of Jesus like we've never seen before. It's in the calm before the storm, so Jesus looks for a quiet place to go and bring his closest friends to be with his heavenly Father. He says this in verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go and I pray. And he took Peter closer and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, with him. And he began uh, to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus was not one to be dramatic or to be someone who exaggerated. This is how he felt. Again, we typically think of Jesus. This is not the way that we think about him. We, we want to think about Jesus laughing and, and healing and forgiving and kind and strong and gentle and, and overturning tables in the temple or even you know, teaching there with people or, or, or debating hypocrites or walking on water. That's the Jesus we want to see, but that's not what we see in this text. Jesus is falling on his face, crying out to his father, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm surrounded on all sides with grief. Look what Luke writes, Luke 22, 43 through 44. It says, an angel came from heaven, appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on to the ground. The father was so concerned for Jesus that he sent an angel to spend time with him, to just settle him, to remind him, to comfort him, encourage him. And then it says something very unique in Luke's gospel account. It says that Jesus was in anguish and it says that his sweat was like drops of blood. And that's a real condition medically called hemotidrosis. Under great stress, the sweat glands dilate to the point of rupture, pushing blood to the surface of your body, coming out as droplets of blood with sweat. Jesus was overwhelmed emotionally about the magnitude of the moment. Question for you, you ever felt like that? Maybe you've never sweat drops of blood, but have you ever had a moment where you thought, you know what, all the options that are on the table, they're all bad. I mean, there's not like an upside. Ever feel like, you know what, there's, there's things in this world that can fix things, but I'm looking at this situation, and I don't think it can be fixed. Or maybe you've gotten a phone call in the middle of the night that devastated you, that staggered you. Or maybe you're standing in an emergency room or a hospital room or a funeral home trying not to scream or fall apart. Maybe it's a conversation that you've had with someone that included words like divorce 
or depression or you're fired or you're broke or you're not wanted or you're rejected or you're sick and it's, it's cancer and it's terminal. Those words take your breath away. It's a kick in the stomach. The room begins to spin. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. And what do you do? What do you do? The only thing that we know to do, which is to cry out to the only one that can help us, the, the one source of strength and hope that's greater than anything in this world. I've talked to many people who've had stories that before they knew Jesus and all of a sudden their circumstances, everything gets dumped out, their rug gets pulled out from underneath them, and they don't even know if there is a God, but here's the reality. I'm going I'm to find some faith, and I hope that he's there, and if he's there, I'm praying some big desperate prayers. In your notes, number two, Jesus prays a desperate prayer. He does. He prays a desperate prayer. He's overwhelmed to the point of death, sweat, sweating drops of blood, emotionally spent, calls out to his heavenly father. Here's what he says in verse 39. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will. Your will be done. Face on the ground, Jesus asked an honest prayer. And I like the way the gospel of Mark records this. Mark 14, 36. He says, Abba, Father, just means Daddy. I got, I got little ones. And when you hear the word Daddy, I like Dad. Father is okay. Daddy, I'm with you. What do you need? He says, Daddy, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what, not what I will, your will be done. God, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Am I saying the right things? Is it, is it about saying the right things so that you'll hear me? God, is, it, is there something going on in my life that, that you can't hear me? God, are you so busy somewhere else that you can't hear me? Because if you can, I need you to fix this. You can fix this. You can change this. Everything is possible with you. You can do all things. You made the heavens. You made the earth. You made everything that we see, everything that exists. You made bodies, you made life, you made health. God, can you do that? Would you do that in our situation? God, would you do something in my family? Would you do something in our marriage? Would you do something in this divorce? Would you do something to end this abuse? Would you bring back my kids? You can change minds and hearts. God, if you're willing, please fix this, change this. Please make it different. Ever prayed a prayer like that? Prayed a bunch of prayers like that. Or battle with infertility a bunch of years ago. I got to a place where if you came to me and said, hey, I need you to pray for something. I could pray believing that God would take care of your need. I even believed that he would take care of all my other needs other than this specific need, which was to get pregnant. It was grueling. Pray, pray, pour out our hearts. God, you know the desire of our hearts. Hand is prayer. You name it. All these things. God, everything is possible with you. And nothing, nothing it's grueling. Getting the call late at night that my brother had been in a motorcycle accident and then driving an hour to Louisville to find out that he had passed away. Grueling. Finding out my dad had prostate cancer. Grueling. Finding out that my wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer, the doctor's appointments, the, the countless surgeries, a couple of miscarriages. Y'all, grueling. Dealing with, with my wife's depression many years ago. Grueling. Big prayers for the finalization of our adoption with Everly. Grueling. 
A big scare in the middle of our pregnancy with Amelia. Grueling. Raw prayers loaded with, with honest words. Emotions all over the place. God, you have to move. You have to help. You have to protect. You have to provide. This week, our staff spent a lot of time praying for, for many of you, the things that have been going on. Just grueling, honest, raw God, do something in this situation. Intervene here. Do something in their situation. God, release them of that. Free them of that. Do a miracle in that. Raw prayers being prayed. If you've never prayed a prayer like that one day, you will. You will. Desperate prayers. They aren't nice and neat. They're not smooth and eloquent. They're not thought out. They're, They're just straightforward and honest. They're raw and unrehearsed. They're real and authentic, just like Jesus' prayer in the garden. Three times, Jesus cries out to his Father, take this cup from me. Take it from me. The word cup is is an Old Testament term, metaphor for suffering or trials or, or even the wrath of God. God, take this cup from me. Jesus was going to a cross to pay the penalty that we should have paid. The Bible says in in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wage of sin is death. Because God is holy and just, sin has to be paid for. That means someone has to die. And see, the crucifixion is God's plan to pay for the sins and the wage of sins of the world and the wrath of God has to be put on someone and that someone is Jesus instead of us. So what is it that's so overwhelming about this cup? What is it that's so overwhelming to Jesus in this moment? What is this cup that that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, take this cup from me. I don't don't want this cup. What is it? Is it that his closest friends that he's been with for three and a half years, he's invested his life in, he's spent time in, he's told them this is what's going to happen. He's asked them to get close to him because here's the deal. The time is here. So I need you to pray and I need you to keep watch because all this is about to really get going fast. And he goes back to them three different times and they're asleep. Is that it? No. Is it that all all the the shouts of Hosanna on his way in on the triumphal entry was so beautiful and so great, but yet he knows that those words are going to be different. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. No. I used to think that it was just about Jesus knowing that he could fast forward and see all the things that were about to happen. Betrayal. That all of his disciples would leave him, deny him that he would be arrested, that he would be beaten, that he would be whipped, that he would be spit on, he would be mocked, he would be crucified. And that would be enough. That would be enough in that cup to go, you know what? I don't want it. But I think it's something more. I think it's bigger than that. Here it is. And I want you to write these down. These aren't in your notes. Jesus is about to face two things that he's never faced ever, he's never experienced in his life before. Here it is. The guilt and shame of sin and separation from his father. He doesn't know that. He's never known that. He's never experienced that. Jesus, up until this point, had led a sinless life. He's a spotless lamb of God that Scott talked about last week. He has faced every temptation that you and I are going to face, and yet he he stood. He remained pure. He did the right thing. He did what God asked him to do. He was obedient. He's never experienced the fallout, the devastation, the consequences, the curse, the guilt of sin. And it's in this moment he's about to do that. And he's had endless fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that's all about to be ripped from him. He will, he will be on a cross and at some point he will say, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
I think that's the cup. Isaiah 53 says this, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Here it is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was written 700 years before Jesus would put on flesh, walk this earth, and die on a cross. This is the doctrine of imputation. It's where God the Father trades our sins and puts them on Jesus and takes Jesus' righteousness and puts them on us. That's what that means. We're going to teach more on this in the weeks to come as we talk about the cross, but Jesus is going to take all the guilt, all the sin, all the wrongdoing, all of mankind and credit that and put that on Jesus. Find him guilty. And then allow him to pay the consequence for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of the world. See, when Jesus was on the cross, here's what we have to understand. He didn't just pay for your sin and my, my sin. He paid for all the sins, the totality of all sins. Jesus took on all sin. He would take on the sin of adultery. Had too many conversations with, with way too many of you who've walked through the pain of adultery, whether you're a student or you're an adult. He becomes adultery. Lust, pornography, pride, drunkenness, rape, murder, divorce, abuse, child abuse, abortion, addiction, greed. Jesus would, would take on all of those sins and he would become sin. He became all the things that ruined the world, that polluted the earth, that destroyed families, that diseased the body, that wounded the soul, that destroyed the mind. Jesus became all the things that would ever condemn a person to hell. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is a passage we should all put to memory. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not because of anything that you've done, not because you've, you've, you've read your 2020 or because you're here today in church or because you serve somewhere or because you give money. God gives you his righteousness. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. In, the, in this act of crucifixion, God's holiness and wrath and God's love collide at the cross because he is holy and he wants us to be holy and when we're not, sin separates us and the wage of sin is death and death had to be paid for so someone had to die and Jesus dies in our place but yet God loves us and he has grace for us and so in the cross, Jesus, all the sins are applied Death has been applied to Jesus so that we could see that, that God is serious about his holiness and he's also serious about his love and grace so that we could be forgiven and free. Number three, Jesus stood at a crossroads of obedience and disobedience. I don't know if you ever looked at it this way. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. Maybe you've never even really considered it because Jesus was just a good boy that you know he would never think of doing something like this. But here's the reality. Let me just go back to this, this prayer, Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not my will, your will be done. You think Jesus was tempted 
to punt on this idea, to reconsider, to, to not move forward toward a bloodstained cross with his future on it? Of course. It's why, he's, it's why he asked God to take it away. God, can we just flood the earth again and start over? If there's another way, another plan, another option, a plan B, let's do it. But here's what's interesting about Jesus. The one, this one thing that God the Father asked of Jesus, there's not an option. There's not a plan B. There's not another scenario. And this is what I want us to capture today. It's non-negotiable with Jesus, this thing called obedience. See, every time Jesus is at a crossroads and he wants a change in plans or a change in circumstances, each time there's always this disclaimer, an overriding statement that says, it's not my will, your will be done. Father, this is hard. I don't want to do it. I'd rather not do this, but your will be done. Father, I don't even know if I can do this. I'm overwhelmed. I don't even know if I can, I can handle this, but, but you can do anything. Your will be done. Father, I don't desire this, but it is not about my desires. It's about you. Your will be done. It's a theme of Jesus' life. When the disciples were asking Jesus, how do we pray? One of the key things in the middle of this prayer is that he says, he says that we ask for your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a mega theme in Jesus' life, obedience. I'm going to show you some passages. John 8, 28, it says, So when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus' whole life was about obeying the Father. John 14, 13 says this, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus' whole mission was about bringing glory to the Father through his life. John 5, 30 says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. For Jesus, it's all, only, completely about seeking after the, the will of God and obeying him and trusting him and knowing that his will is good because he is a good good father. Jesus is in the garden and he asked his heavenly father a second time in verse 42. Went away, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken unless I drink it, your will be done. He wrestles a third time. It says this in verse 44. So he left them, went away once again, prayed a third time, saying the same thing. God, it's not about my will. Your will be done. He needs their prayers. He's talking to these guys. I need you right now. I, for, for, for a third time, God, I don't want to do this, but if this is the only way and this is my cup to drink, if there's another way, let's do it. If there's not, let's do this. Your will be done. Jesus lived his life with an overriding principle gateway, and here, here it is. It's his passionate focus. This is the crux of our, of our talk today, and this is in your notes. Number four, obedience trumps everything. Everything. Obedience to the Father, it trumps everything. And here's the question. Is that true in your life? Obedience is more important than personal comfort. Obedience is more important than impending circumstances. Obedience to God is more important than our personal happiness. Obedience to God's will is more important than our own will. I know what I want. I know how I feel. I have some ideas on the subject, God. But the only question that matters in the end is this. Father, what do you want from me? What is your will for my life? Not my will, your will be done. 
There's so much in that. So much to dig down into personally. What is it in your life that you are facing that is bumping up against the will of God? What is that for you? Maybe it's emotional, or maybe it's financial, or maybe it's relational, or maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's this habit that's going on. Maybe it's something that you continue to wrestle with. I I don't know what that is. Maybe you're facing something right now, and you don't know what to do and and, and where to go and and what forward looks like for you. Just trust Him. Lean into Him. Ask Him. Give Him your heart. Let Him give you His heart. He will communicate that to you. You can trust Him. He wants to reveal His will to you. Maybe you're a high school student and you're senior, and you're, you're, or junior, and you're just wrestling through, what is, it, what is it that I'm supposed to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? I mean, all these people are doing this. My friends are going here. My parents want this. God, what do you want for me? What is your will for my life? Maybe you're a college graduate, and, you, and you're in a place where you've gotten your degree, or you're about to get your degree, and you don't know where that thing's going to take you vocationally. God does, and he loves you, and he has a plan for you, and it's a good plan. And he wants you to come to him, and he wants to reveal that to you. But you have to trust him. Maybe you've been doing something a long time. You've been doing it the same way, and it's always worked, and it's always been something that's been good. You've always worked in the same job. You've always done whatever that is. And God's right now in a place where he's asking you to lay it down. i got something else for you. That that dream is going to die because I'm going to resurrect something new in you. Walk with me. I'll reveal it to you. You can trust me. Maybe you're facing a decision at crossroads and you've always gone this direction, always, every single time, and God's going, no, no, no. We're going here. We're going here because I have something that I want to do and I want to do in you and I want to do through you. See, I'm sovereign. I have all the pieces and I know how they all work and I want to leverage your life, your gifts, your ability because I want to do something beautiful in your life and in this community or in this situation. I just want you to walk with me and trust me. What is it right now? What is the one thing in your life that you've got to borrow Jesus' prayer right now? And it's this, Father, not my will, your will be done. My hope is that we would begin to to, to look at this prayer and begin to think through, what does it look like for us? What does it really mean? Because here's the great thing about God. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how bad you feel, no matter how messed up things have gotten, no matter whose fault it is, no matter what's in front of you or what you're facing, God promises to help us if we will lean into Him and trust Him and follow Him and obey His will. See, no matter what you've done, You could have messed it up the whole way through. God's going, hey, listen, we just start right here. We can start right now. It doesn't matter all that stuff because, again, the cross is taking care of that. The resurrection is taking care of all that. I have plans for you. I don't want you just to blink and it's another decade of the same old, same old. I have something that I want to do in your life. Is it about your will or about his will? Whatever it is. You have a heavenly father that wants to walk with you through the deepest and the darkest and the most difficult pain in your life. And on the other side of that pain, here's what you're going to experience. You're going to experience his strength in your weakness, his faithfulness in your obedience, his grace that's completely sufficient for you regardless of what you're going through or what you will one day go through. I do not know the garden experiences that you have right now or what they will be in the future. I only know this, that there is a God that is waiting for you in the garden that he's enough for you, that he will be enough for you. He is only always faithful, and he can be trusted. 
Push past the fear. Lay down your pride. Draw close to him. Come to me, Jesus says. Draw on his strength and receive his will and live the life that God dreamed that you would live. Take the step and do what God's calling you to do. Even when it's hard, even when you're the only one and you're, you're pushing back through this current that's going this direction, everybody else is going this direction, pick up your feet and walk through the stream. Trust in him. Not my will, your will be done. It's a simple prayer, but it's a, it's a dangerous prayer. And maybe we need to add these nine words into the vernacular of our prayer life. Because here's the reality. we got all kinds of things that we're praying about, all kinds of things that we desire and hope for, all kinds of things that we need. But at the end of those prayers, whatever they look like, however often we're praying, maybe we need to begin to say, hey, you know what? You've, you've told me that I can, I can call on you for anything, cast all my cares on you because you care for me, that you're a father that wants to hear from me, that, that you won't give me a rock, you, you're, you're better than an earthly father. All those things are true. God, I'm going to give you all the things that are on my heart. But at the end of this prayer, here it is. Father, in all of that, not my will, your will be done. Scary prayer. It's a big prayer. It's a purposeful prayer. And here's the reality. God's will for us is for our good. And it's always for his glory. Let me give you the last point. Obedience toward God is less about keeping the rules and more about trusting him. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you think about that. I didn't grow up thinking about that. I thought if there is a God and all these Christians are doing all this thing and the Bible is blah, 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 I thought, you know what, obedience is not very sexy. No one really likes that word. Obedience is not really good because we deal with authority and we struggle with that. And the reality is, here it is, just so you know, the Ten Commandments, all these different things. Here's what we think. We think, you know, it's just about the rules. It's about these principles, about these commands. And here's what it's really about. Do you trust the Father? Do you trust the Father's will for your life? Do you trust that he knows how life works best? Do you trust that he has a plan for you? Do you trust that he knows what's best for you? Your relationships, your emotions, your decisions, your finances, whatever that looks like, your future. You trust him. Obedience is sexy to God. It's the thing that causes him to stand up and go, wow, look at my son, look at my daughter here. Wow, that's amazing. They trust me. They believe me i got three kids, and you know what? I love it when my four-year-old and my three-and-a-half-year-old, they trust me, they obey me. I love it when my 13-year-old trusts me. It's not because I'm trying to be a dictator dad, but because I love her and I want what's best for her. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. He wants what's best for us. It's not obedience for morality's sake. It's obedience that stems from a loving, personal relationship with Christ. That's it. There is hope out of the garden. There is There was hope for Jesus and every garden that you and I will experience today and tomorrow. Obedience trumps everything because we love God and we trust him. Jesus pushes past the pain of the garden to obediently follow God all the way to a bloodstained cross for you, for me, for every person that you know, the person you think, you know, they can never come to God. Not true. All things are possible with God. Christ is not only honored when we stand at the crossroads and seek him, but he gives us his will as well as the strength to fulfill that and walk that out with him and do the right thing. Let me just sum up these last three weeks. Week one, the triumphal entry, Jesus is a coming king. 
week two, the Last Supper, Jesus is the pure spotless lamb that would lay down his life for you, for me. In week three, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is a suffering servant. He's a, ser- he's, he's, a, he's a servant of man and a servant of God. A suffering servant who obediently followed the road less traveled. He laid down self. He laid down his own life, giving everything for one purpose. Here it is, to bring glory and honor to his Father. To demonstrate the love of the Father. To pay for the sins of the world. and To reconnect us back to God. This is That's the reality. He came to rescue every single one of us. And he pushes past the garden because he was thinking about you and me and your family and your friends and your classmates and your coworkers and your teachers because he loves them. And he, as Isaiah said, would take on all of our iniquities. All of that would be put on him. Let's trust him. Let's trust that he knows what's best. Let's trust his best for our lives. And let's follow the example of Christ by saying these words. Father, it's not about me. Not about my happiness. Not about my preferences. Not about my personal concerns. Not about even the things that I really, really want. Not my will. Your will be done. There is a way out of our gardens. And the only way out is by leaning on a heavenly father who sent his son to go through that experience to then willingly lay his life down on a cross. It's going to be worth it. Let me close with John 16, It says, in this world, Jesus said this, we will have trouble. But take heart. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't back down. Don't sit down. Lean in because Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the garden. It's not a favorite passage of mine. It's not a passage I desire to live in a lot of the times. It's not the way I like to see Jesus. But God, I'm thankful so much that you were able to give us a glimpse through these gospel writers to help us understand what he went through, what he thought about, what he was tempted with. And yet he was willing to go forward, trust in you, trust in your plans, only with, with the desire to please you, give you glory, and give you praise. God, many of us today are in a difficult spot, a garden spot, or maybe we're in a crossroads, or we just struggle with a lot of the same things, or God, you're trying to do something new in us. And God, our prayer is that you would begin to root out the things that we, you don't want anymore, prune us so that we can become more fruitful for you, be the people that you long for us to be. God, if there's anyone in this room today that doesn't know you, that didn't understand who you were and, and is coming to a realization of who you are and what you came to do for us, and they've never, they've never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, God, help them to understand that they are living beneath their privilege. This is why you came. God, that, you're, that, that they could understand today that there's grace for every mistake that sin has been paid for, that they don't have to carry it any longer. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the fact that all of our sin was put on you so that we could receive your righteousness. God, may we live in that righteousness today. May we become that righteousness for others. May we live as a light in our community, in our world, in our homes, and in our schools. And God, whatever else it is that you want to say to us today, in this moment, throughout the week, God, help us to begin to start praying these prayers, God. 
It's not my will, your will be done. God, may that be so in our lives, in our marriages, in our struggles, in our pain, with our futures, and in this church. God, use us for your glory. We love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen.